if we think of technique as something that that mediates relations, that opens up our sensibility and our resonance with relations that might otherwise not become visible. And then a plant can be a technology for a human just as much as a human can be a technology for a plant in so far as that it opens up spheres of resonance and interdependency and mutual use and uh, that we all potentially thrive from. Mm. Maybe one way of resisting um, this dominant extractivist culture of technology. This is AI Murmurings, a podcast exploring intersections of contemporary art and artificial intelligence. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab, a multidisciplinary research and curatorial platform based in the Netherlands. Conversations here exploring slow approaches to creative thinking and practice aim to awaken latent potentials for AI that are murmuring just under the surface. The podcast is produced in partnership with the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and Sia Furler Institute, both at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. It's part of a first-of-its-kind artistic research program called Art Intelligence. Joining me today on the podcast are Jonas Stahl, a Dutch visual artist based between Athens and Rotterdam, who focuses on the relation between art, propaganda, and democracy, and Rada D'Souza, a lawyer, social justice activist, professor, and author, originally from India and currently based in London. Their ongoing joint project, the Court for Intergenerational Climate Crimes, currently is installed through February 13th, 2022 at Framer Framed in Amsterdam. I'm really glad to have this opportunity to learn from them, to share their project further with our listeners, and to understand what its implications might be for the past, present, and future of technologies like AI. So without further ado, Rada D'Souza and Jonas Stahl, welcome and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Nice to be with you. So let's jump right in. The Court for Intergenerational Climate Crimes, or CICC as it's sometimes abbreviated, is described as a more than human tribunal for the prosecution of crimes against humans, non-humans, cultures and ecosystems, past, present and future. You both have described it as bridging a space between artistic and legal imagination to shape political reality. Uh, could one or both of you please start by explaining briefly what the CIC is and why you felt moved to bring it into the world at this time? Jonas, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> on cue, I will, for sure. Um, <laughs> Maybe to start with the, the question on the meeting point between artistic and, and legal imaginary. Um, Rada and I have uh, worked together uh, through solidarity movements before we started to, to collaborate on a project of our own, the Court for Intergenerational Climate Crimes. And an important starting document uh, for our collaboration was uh, my encounter with her book, What's Wrong with Rights, from 2018, in which she... Um, proposes a very fundamental critique of the culture of rights, which uh, at first to me seemed counterintuitive because the idea that we need to accrue more rights instead of uh, critiquing the idea of rights seems, seems to come kind of natural, especially when you're active in um, progressive political parties and, and movements and the like. The question is always about how do we expand rights, not only across um, human subjects, but also how do we expand rights to animals, to nature. And instead, um, she describes how instead of rights, we, we could speak of, of relations. Um, instead mm -hmm. of rights that are structured on a dichotomy between people and nature, we could speak of nature as a relationship. Um, and our relations as interdependent relations, uh, in which when one would harm a river or a forest, 
one doesn't only harm the rights of that river or that forest, but of all animal plants, uh, humans that live in interdependency with that river or that forest. Um, that became the imaginary of the Court for Intergenerational Climate Crimes. I started to think and also to sketch in her book, how could this proposition of nature as relation, land as relation, how could this translate into a spatial form, a performative form? How could this speak to this uh, disastrous um, climate catastrophe that we're facing now, which, as Rada explains, is a colonial inheritance? We are in 500 years of climate, uh, climate catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And how could we expand the legal imaginaries that we, that we have inherited in which only the past and the present count? How could we expand that into the category of the future? Rada, do you have something to add? Yeah, well, um, as Yona said, both of us have a very strong and long commitment to social movements and social justice and social change. And we are actively involved in various movements. That's how we met. And uh, when I wrote this book, I actually wrote it for activists. Mm. And that is because I felt we were caught, our imaginations were caught in this kind of bind, if you like. And we produce amazing critique of a problem. And we want that to change. But when it comes to solutions, we go back to, let's go to court, let's change the law. You know, and we are not able to get out of those liberal legal imaginaries. Mm. So when Jonas contacted me about doing this project, for me, it was, okay, this is an opportunity to shift that imaginary, to create Mm. an another imaginary, you know, because I'm not interested in just an academic critique. I want that critique to do something in the world. And so I thought this is a great opportunity to make that happen. How can we broaden people's imaginaries? Well, I would just say that you've done it so beautifully, both in terms of the yeah, the breadth of knowledge that you have, have succeeded in in transmitting, yeah, and the volume, of course, of, of questions that that all of that raises. Um, I wanted to mention the exhibition space at Framer Framed in Amsterdam as well, just how it was designed. Framer Framed, by the way, being a platform for contemporary art, visual culture, and critical theory and practice in Amsterdam. The space is recast as a courtroom. It's filled with the presences of extinct plants and animals non-human animals that have perished since the advent of colonialism. Um, it's also populated by fossils that go much further back in time. And at the center of the space, there's this pool of oil, right? Fossil fuel, a central protagonist of climate change, or at least the way we think about climate change. So in addition to thinking about our human ancestors, you've described the importance of including these elements as witnesses to prior extinctions. We are in the middle of a a mass extinction right now. And you call them comradely ancestors offering evidence of violated ties in our shared ecology. And it was within that context, that physical context, that stage or for the that that a series of hearings were performed in October of 2021. Um, that prosecuted a criminal case against three multinational corporations based in the Netherlands, being ING, Unilever, and Airbus, as well as um, against the government of the Netherlands for its complicity in those crimes against humans, non-humans, cultures, and ecosystems. So there were certain elements that we wanted to bring into that into that uh, uh, project, so which will push people's imaginaries in new directions. One was that the question of 
looking at the legal infrastructures that allows climate crimes to happen. Right. You know, I mean, like if you even drove beyond your traffic limit, you will be stopped and fined. There's no way you can get away from it. But here are these corporations, you know, doing these terrible, terrible things across the world. And they, there is no consequence. And unless you look at the legal infrastructures that allows that and does not allow you to speed, but allows the corporations to do what they do. So that is what we wanted to get people to think about. People have got accustomed to and they have internalized this idea that a corporation is a person. Hmm. But a corporation is not a person. And the other thing we wanted to push the, was that the state to which we are emotionally attached because we are citizens, hmm. We will think we are, it's a democracy. You know, that one vote that I have every five years somehow, you know, is, is mine. You know, I'm very attached to that vote and all of us are. And I wanted to push that question also in popular imaginaries by showing, you know, by saying, hey, you know, this state is also a legal person. You know, it's not a collective of individuals. It's actually the other side of the coin of corporations. You know, corporations and states are two sides of the same capitalist coin. Right. So these are the kind of elements we wanted to bring together in the CICC project. And that's what we tried to do through, you know, whatever say a set of visual representations, performative things, participatory representation, you know, uh, uh, issues. So multiple elements in that. You insist on this language of comradeship, which is being on the same side of a struggle. It means common work, common dependencies, common care. For us, it was very important that in... Um, in the process and in the, the the larger ecological discourse in which we have arrived now, the use of terms like non-human, other than human, more than human have become more common ground as a way mm-hmm. to recognize other intelligences and the various relations that, that exist between them to understand that ecosystems are not um, autopoetic, that nothing creates creates itself from itself, but then to also paraphrase um, Don Haraway, that they are sympoetic, that they continuously exist in a mutual weaving and structure of interdependency. Mm. One, of course, fundamental problem about the non-human, other than human, more than human, is that it still is only able to define what someone else is in relationship to what it is to be a human. Comradeship doesn't doesn't need that. When I say you are my comrade, it doesn't. I don't need to 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 make explicit whether this is a a, a human or non-human being that I'm speaking to. For me, this was a really crucial aspect um, that that I feel sometimes misses in uh, contemporary discourse on ecology. We wanted to challenge that nature-human separation. Because that it is that separation that is the cause of the whole crisis. Yeah, and what you have called the original sin of capitalism. The original sin of capitalism. Yeah. The separation of nature and people was a very violent process. Every enclosure movement, every peasant who was thrown out of his land, it was forcibly done, brutally done. And, and that is how that happens. Yeah. And that separation then produces its own epistemology, which is a very dualist epistemology. And so nature becomes a thing, a property, and people become labor force, and both become resources. We inherited that from our ancestors, who were all victims of waves of colonialism. We pass it on. And if it is intergenerational, then when we speak of climate crimes, 
We are basically speaking in our capacity as ancestors of future generations and as descendants of past generations. So we are in this middle space where the past and the future converge in a way. It's a meeting place and we are that and we wanted people to think of themselves and their activism in that way. The proceedings that took place in the Court of Intergenerational Climate Crimes were named as hearings. And hearing, of course, being a term to describe a legal proceeding where law or fact is tried and evidence is presented. But you also intended the term hearing to be understood in the sense of hearing and being heard. The process of listening and witnessing. One of the CICC judges present during the hearings talked about hearing or listening to resonances across different struggles and across different time scales? Well, I think that the, the setup of the Court for Intergenerational Climate Crimes was also an attempt to, to expand some um, terms from their more limited use in regular um, legal framework. So, for example, uh, you described already very clearly that uh, the court itself consists of evidence of climate crimes. It's the images of extinct uh, plants, the images of extinct animals, the actual fossils that uh, are the fossils in fossil fuels, and these inherent time scales that rep represent millions of years and that are burned in a relatively short period of time of a few hundred, hundred years under capitalist regimes. Um, that accelerate our movement in the present, but undo the possibility of a future. The court itself consists of this evidence. It, it resonates these intergenerational climate crimes, as Rada describes them, over different scales uh, of time. But they are not um, passive evidence. We, we consider all the animals, all the, the plants, the fossils present, also as witnesses, witnesses to our attempts as um, as their descendants, uh, and as Rada said, as ancestors of the future, to confront the mechanisms, the legal mechanisms, the infrastructural mechanisms, the extractivist mechanisms that have led to, to their demise, that have led to their undoing, that have mm -hmm. attempted to break um, the bonds, the possibilities of comradeship uh, across uh, human and non-human ecosystems. And I think with the concept of hearing in the public hearing, we attempted at a similar um, expansion of uh, what, what hearing means, what hearing means as a shared act, as a political act, what it means to, uh, to acknowledge the loss of time, the possibility of future time, um, what it means to deepen, uh, to deepen that loss on one hand, to acknowledge uh, worlds lost, and at the same time to hear collectively in our collective desire to not only recognize climate crimes, but to undo them and to dismantle uh, the agents that perpetuate them, to hear the possibility of a future, to hear future time. This is what it means to be an ancestor, to be an ancestor of the future. Mm. So it moves, I think, the proceedings of the Court for Intergenerational Climate Crimes move continuously between these different notions of hearing. Uh, hearing as an acknowledgement of loss and hearing of collective possibilities of shared futurities. One of the things I felt you did really powerfully was through the hearings to transmit the lived experience of people in countries as diverse as um, Kenya, Cameroon, India, Brazil, um, Yemen, that was a very powerful one, while also speaking out for the more than humans that have suffered among them in relation to the climate crimes that you were prosecuting. And as witnesses, their witness testimony made visible and tangible what might otherwise have been an invisible ongoing violence inflicted on lands, on their cultures, on their communities, and even in cases where the activities of those multinational corporations may have ceased operations long ago. That kind of attritional violence 
delayed destruction, often invisible, dispersed across time and space, is what has come to be called slow violence. And that's a term that you both used. You co-edited a journal, the Errant Journal, which is a publication of Framer Framed with the theme of slow violence. What is slow violence exactly, or how would you describe it? Well, for me, the way I understand slow violence is closely related to our inability because of modernist knowledge and modernist epistemology and modernist structures of thought, our inability to see ourselves, to locate ourselves in the larger cosmological, ontological universe. And this is a particular feature of modernity. Everything is here and now. Everything is reduced to numbers, statistics. Everything is instrumentalized. Everything is here and now. And what that does, that very instrumentalized thing, which, which we all need. I mean, we all need goods and commodities. We need clothes to wear, food to eat. You know, there's nothing. But to reduce our existence to that is is problematic because then we lose our capacity to locate ourselves in a large cos- the cosmological universe which is expansive huge right. and ontological our relationship to that cosmos is what is ontological and we have no way so we have all this information we have all this knowledge or, or, you know, what you call knowledge. And we know all these amazing things, how to make, you know, mobile phones, how to do this and that and that. But who are we? Why are we in this world? What is our relationship to the universe? And when you lose that, you lose perspective of technology. You lose perspectives of, for science. You know, everything loses its perspective. And it's that loss of perspective is what I would call fast motion. Hmm. And when you pause to understand and to locate yourself, you know, in the wider world, in the larger scheme of things, and that connection is for me slow yes. knowledge, you yes. know. And when you rupture that slow knowledge, you have slow violence mm-hmm. because this has gone on for a long time. And now we are in this terrible mess where we are no longer have the language even to to reconnect ourselves to those larger questions. Yeah. Time is perhaps one of the most persuasive forces working on the side of the perpetrators of slow violence because of how slowly... um, it unfolds. And yet at the same time, time is something that your project has really leveraged to positive effect in terms of um, thinking through the multiple, thinking multi-temporally, expanding, as I often talk about at Slow Research Lab, the importance of sort of expanding the temporal horizon within which we perceive and understand our lives and our livelihoods. Um, And this idea that multiple tempos and temporalities can exist simultaneously. And you both emphasize that humans can and must think in other time dimensions. I think when we talk about climate crisis, we talk also about a chronopolitical struggle, a struggle over different conceptions of time. Um, and and the struggle over which uh, conceptions of time allows a plurality of, of temporalities to, to meet and coexist rather than to be um, extracted um, extracted and, and burned. It's maybe a little bit of a paraphrasing of the Zapatista Army of National Liberation's famous uh, declaration of a struggle for a world of many worlds. But then we're speaking of a, a time of, of many times. Many times. Um, in that time of many times, of course, there is a, a present. I think at, at its uh, most important moments, um, Rada and me in the court for intergenerational climate crimes try to create 
a space of of deep present, the present in which uh, ancestral relations and our future relations as ancestors of the futures can can meet and coexist. Um, at the same time, in that presence, there's of course such a thing as an immediate um, urgency, and it seems sometimes to me that slowness or relative slow slowness can also belong to a particular position of um, of of uh, of relative privilege like for example mm-hmm. when the ipcc declared that we have 12 years to change our economic systems towards sustainable models we have 12 years but at that moment that these 12 years were were declared um brutal typhoons have already ravaged the countryside of the Philippines. Um, island nations are already drowning and mm-hmm. countless um, indigenous communities and fir- First Nations and countless uh, climate activists in Amazonia have already disappeared every year and across decades and, and centuries. So f- to who does that 12 year belong? Huh? Who, who's, whose time are we talking about? Who has time? Who still has time compared to this war on the time of others on which such a declaration stands or that such a declaration um, not just ignores, but um, excludes from its perception of futurity. And I think within this this space, this chrono-political space that the Court for Intergenerational Climate Crimes wants to be, where all of these different broader and and non-linear resonances across different times inherited times and times we want to we hope to be inherited in the future take place i also feel that there is this this absolute urgency that that responds to um an absolute absence of time and an ever shrinking uh, future for the vast majority of of the world's population human or or non-human I'd like to shift gears um, also in the interest of the focus of this podcast and apply some of the thinking and strategies of the CICC to those emerging technologies like AI upon which we all are increasingly dependent. Um, We can, of course, critique um, big tech's centralization of power and directly related to that our declining ability as individuals to exercise autonomy and agency and, of course, privacy in our uses of it. And, you know, with regard to the CICC, there are, of course, very real climate impacts, massive levels of energy consumption and mineral extraction that is ongoing. Um But we also could talk about the fact that the internet has its very roots in the military industrial complex, and that today defense agencies like DARPA and the US are investing billions of dollars per year in AI and machine learning. So I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts, your analysis, your speculative fabulations, Uh, Radha. I'll just make two points of a very general, this is very broad, you know, and after all, this is a program on slow research. So Mm. I can be excused for not being, you know, for waffling on, if you like. Um, The two points I'll make, one is about the place of science and technology in contemporary world. Uh, at least since the turn of the 20th century. And in my book, I have called this the transnational monopoly, the epoch of transnational monopoly capital, which is transnational monopoly finance capital. Yeah, And that is a big transformation in the nature of capitalism that occurs in the early 20th century. And one of the drivers of that is the transformations in science 
Mm. Yeah. And one of the things that happens with that, and we all talk about Einstein's relativity and concept of transformations and time, space, etc. But there is also an institutional side to the whole thing, which crystallizes during the world wars. Yeah. And that is the integration of the states, corporations, and scientific establishments, universities mainly. It is the coming together of the scientific establishments, universities, and the defense departments in the states, because that, that's the most important, and the corporations that gives us this whole epoch that is based on military-industrial complex. So the economy, the culture, the society. And then you have a legal system, yeah, which mm -hmm. the U.S. was particularly in the forefront of inventing called dual-use systems. And the dual-use laws allow a technology that is first produced in the military by the military-industrial establishment to then peter out into the larger society for commercial uses. So if you look at any Airbus, for example, they produce air, you know, airplanes in which you and I travel and go holidays or visit families. But the same Airbus also produces airplanes for war. So the factory is the same, the establishment is the same, the science is the same, the actors are the same. It's just two different uses. Right? So this is how our lives are completely entangled in this. There is another thing that happens during the world wars, and that is the uh, chemical industries. And since the invention, and, and because chemical industries involve, you know, uh, uh, process-based industries, you know, it's, it's not like engineering, it is process-based industries. And that then pushes for science to invent better and better processes. Mm. So science changes from being, you know, discovering nature, finding out why the planets rotate, what is the nature of the, you know, system, how do, why do plants grow, why does an apple fall down? You know, it goes from questions about how does nature operate into questions about how production can be made more efficient. And that change comes during the world wars and the post-world war world is structured by that new kind of science and technology. And so when you go into those basics, then you're not just talking about Jeff Bezos or about this or that. That's the nature of the world that has come about in this stage of capitalism. I think this is a very... This was a very beautiful variation of what's wrong with rights to what's wrong with technology. Yeah. <laughs> and in a very, I think, very, very similar way as, um, as Rada's book uh, does, uh, I think you, Rada, you elaborate on how technology is also an inherent, is an, is an inheritance of, um, or let's say a reproduction of dominant interests, ideologies, proprietary relations that, that that are reproduced in this in the substructure of much of the trillion dollar uh, state complicit infrastructures and regimes that, that that we're facing with now and 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 part of um, part of of a resistance towards it is is lies in its um, untangling I, I think indeed the, the question of categories concepts the, the language for which we speak and reorient ourselves in relationship to that inheritance violence is, is extremely important for me from an artistic perspective of course the question of form and, and, and what form can make us susceptible to in terms of understanding how these inheritances were formed and how they can be resisted dismantled or created otherwise so i mean one of my earliest clear understanding of the ideological substructure and, and violent inheritance of technology was when i encountered the the history of the 10-step grayscale in early black and white photography, um, where the neutral middle point, based on which the black-white balance was oriented, was the palm of a white man's hand that so was kept mm -hmm. in front of the camera. And that was the balance. Based on that technology, it's impossible to make a fo fo photograph of a black person. 
It's mm-hmm. because the entire regime of representation is structured on that on that palm, and that that says everything about that inherited technology. And it, and it asks the question also about how these technologies have festered further, and their the colonial and racialized origins of them. And of course, I mean, there's been a lot of important writing on that, whether it's um, uh, the works on algorithms of oppression, the work of uh, Moha Noble and uh, mm. uh, um the the question of digital colonialism that is laid out by by Zuboff in uh, in in her work on on surveillance um, capitalism, um, and it asks a question I think also in relationship to this notion of intelligence that is referenced when we speak of artificial mm-hmm. intelligence and and whether if that artificial intelligence indeed results from this perpetual predatory extractive culture can we even call it an intelligence eh? without making a judgment on whether it's able to act independently from um, from human agents but is that really an intelligence or is that is that a mentality is that a reproduction of a particular mentality of of empire and what other understandings of technology can we uh, can we use to to oppose that Hmm. So could artificial intelligences actually be instrumental in some way in leveling those hierarchies? It makes me think of uh, a few months ago, I learned from the curator Alice Smits about an artistic research program um, here in Amsterdam within something called the Hybrid Forms Lab at the Freie Universiteit. And Um, The core question of which she explained is whether an AI can be programmed to mirror not a human, but a plant. Uh, The idea being that a plant is possibly a more successful way of being in this world. And I was actually wondering, could an AI be a comrade in that sense? In the ecology of the Court for Intergenerational Climate Crimes, we are relating to each other through very complex inherited and ancient forms of um, technology. If we think of technique as something that mediates relations, that opens up our sensibility and our resonance with relations that might otherwise not become visible, then a plant can be a technology for a human just as much as a human can be a technology for a plant insofar as that it opens up spheres of resonance and interdependency and mutual use and uh, that we all potentially thrive from. Mm. Maybe one way of resisting um, this dominant extractivist culture of technology also to uh, counterpose our own inherited technologies that are not all based on that uh, genealogy and that 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 colonial and, and military genealogy that that underlies the algorithms of oppression of the Google and Facebook uh, Facebook mm. machines and various forms of extraction that they engage with today, which of course have everything to do with climate crimes and have everything to do with uh, with social crimes. And it goes from the extraction of the, the hard minerals by Microsoft and Tesla for their electric uh, electric cars, predominantly in the global south, in terrible mining conditions, which are uh, crimes against human beings, which are crimes against larger ecosystem and, and environments. The um, the consequence of their massive, massive energy consumption and the fact that this consumption disproportionately impacts the global south compared to the global north and the usership itself. Like uh, Facebook would never have 2.8 billion users today. That's only possible because of the north-south uh, empire divide that it continues to extract and from and build on. Mm-hmm. So obviously underlying this question of of predatory uh, technology is is also um, a social and climate uh, emergency. Rada, you said that um, every society throughout human history has had and must have some members who think about the future and the conditions necessary for its reproduction. And you refer to those who've done it in the past as men and women who foresaw dangers and acted like antennas and sensors 
to warn about those existential threats. And today you say they are artists. Art is the only last surviving space hmm. to actually talk about philosophy and life and human you know, place in the world and, and, and all of those kind of big questions. Because you look at the universities now, philosophy departments are closing down. You know, classical languages are going. Literature has suddenly become useless unless you can be listed for the Booker Prize or something. It's no longer a way of, you know, right. communicating to fellow human beings about what our lives have become. Mm-hmm. So it's, right. it's no longer that. And coming, you know, and if I were to link it to that question of hearing that, that, that you mentioned earlier, I mean, hearing is an extremely important means of knowledge. You know, when you listen, because technological knowledge is very dualistic Mm. because it it creates, you know, it's cognitive, it appeals to your intellect. But then human beings have instinct, they have intellect, and they have intuition. And when you put those three things together, you have a three-dimensional knowledge. But that knowledge cannot come only with technology. Technology can give you information, you know, quickly. But it cannot create that intuition, which is necessarily slow, because you don't develop it just by reading a book of statistics or something or the other. You have to go beyond that. And it requires hearing. And it's the hearing skills that we are losing and and the, and the only social communications we increasingly have is mediated by technology and that is uh, making us lose our capacity to hear and that is why we felt that hearing is important people have to sit down and listen because that requires clearing your head out of all this rushing and bustling and all of that, slow down, sit back, and actually listen to what people are saying. Jonas, the question I had for you about it was more about this, about what you say about art, sort of a role, having a role in both enacting and materializing alternative institutions, art, the importance of the artist sort of not, not um, necessarily working solo, but working, but forming alliances. Um, and as we, as we bring, draw this to a close to talk about the role of the artist in the court for intergenerational climate crimes and the, the, the role of the artist in terms of um, how we move forward as a humanity and as an interdependent planet. I see the imagination <clears throat> that art and cultural work contributes to uh, social and political change as something that this can also only be valued in an interdependent way. Mm. So I, I don't think that the imagination of art does much or means much when it's not tied to larger um, coalitions <clears throat> of people willing to transform um, different imaginations of the world into mm. different realities of the world doesn't mean that artistic imagination always transforms into political reality, but I feel tied or I feel indebted to a history of artists and cultural workers that that were also not only artists and cultural workers, but that were organizers and activists and bakers and caretakers Mm -hmm. and um, in, in, in movements that have allowed us to inherit histories of, of possible change and and many changes that we have inherited, whether that is the anti-colonial movement or the socialist movement or the black liberation movement or the feminist movement or the ecological movement. I feel tied to the histories of art and culture that were spun and woven as part of that of these um, struggles in which mm. artistic imaginary and political imaginary always went hand in hand because it's not only about mirroring the world and critiquing the world and asking questions about the world. It's about the desire for, for transformative change. Some of us try to specialize in that question, what does it mean to imagine the world? How does it mean to think of the world in terms of visual literacy, in terms of morphological dialogue? And 
Um, and that is important just as anyone trying to be trying to to gain a craft uh, to contribute to a larger whole is important. But it's not um, something exclusive exclusive to artists, and it's not as if change begins uh, and ends with with artistic imagination. I mean, for, for I I learned so very much from. I've been so very much politically educated and also culturally educated by the movements and organizations I work with. And I wouldn't be able to have conceptualized my form of artistic practice without that. I wanted to draw the conversation to, the, to a close by asking you both just what comes next. Um, you've indicated that there will be more hearings of the Court for Intergenerational Climate Crimes, um, perhaps even indicting one of the big tech companies, who knows? Um, but in the meantime, are there tools and or day-to-day -day practices that we can enact not only in the interest of our well-being in our local communities, um, but, but in solidarity with those near and far, those past, present, and future? What is the future that you both dare to imagine for this project and for how the um, the members of the court will take it forward. I mean, they say the end of one project is the beginning of another. And in that sense, I also see that the CICC has opened up so many new possibilities because, you know, it has triggered this conversation. It has set the cat among the pigeons. And there is a flurry and a flutter now. And at some point, I think we will, Jonas and I will need to sit and think about, you know, what do we do? What are the things that emerge from this? What Rada describes is, is very important in the sense that, that um, if we're thinking of the role of art and cultural work interdependently, then whether and how things continue depends on who shares um, who, who shares resonance and, and uh, re which collectives recognize meaning in the imaginary that in this case we propose together in the intersection of the field of art and of the uh, field of art and, and, and law. And, um, and in this case, we saw both in the hearings themselves that the people who participated as public jury came from very diverse fields from the field of progressive law there were many activists and uh, as well as cultural workers as well as policymakers who were present created created a very very important composition also of people of a possible community that could carry the project into the next stage mm. and that's what we've been exploring now with different uh, both activist groups and cultural organizations that have um, uh, asked us to think through further iterations and we have many potential cases that we would love to pursue but we're also looking a lot at different forms how to bring this into the public not only through the public hearing but also through other means through new forms or through different forms of ritual through different forms of um, of, uh, of sonic resonance in the case of the of the processions that we're that we're trying to um, that we're trying to conceptualize so this is indeed it's um um we we try to think of the of the space of the court of intergenerational climate crimes as an ecology, and now we're at the moment where that ecology is meeting that of of others, and it's a very exciting process to see how how this continues to plant seeds. Um, in terms of what it means for the day to day, as you were asked, like what do we do on the day to day? The best form of self care is collective care, and, and I don't know another another expression of collective care and collective organization. So for me, it's very important to be one of the many card carrying mm. <laughs> organizers in these, in these groups. Radha, practices of self-care and collective care. The self only exists in relation to others. Mm. You know, I mean, there is no self without others. That is what creates, you know, so, I mean, Coming back to your earlier question about the role of art and artists and so on, and what this means for us. I mean, you know, we have a relationship to nature. We have a relationship to society. There's no human life as possible without a collective human society. And we have a relationship to the self. Call it internal, aesthetic, ethical, you know, all those things. And those three are deeply connected. For me, all those activists and people 
and you know who responded to CICC in the way they have done, including you know yourself, for example, who contacted us. I mean, all of them are artists, and this is the engagement. So what we are trying to do is to rekindle something in that inner world, and for me, that is the artistic world. Mm. And then when that is awakened, then a lot of things can happen. Beautiful. Yona, Sal, and Radha D'Souza, I want to thank you very much for joining me here and moreover for this project you have gifted into our world. Um, it's an act of radical imagination, I would say radical affection, that is certain to reverberate widely in the present and far into the future. Um, I encourage all our listeners to go to the website of Framer Framed, framerframed.nl, to download a range of information relating to the Court of Intergenerational Climate Crimes and to Framer Frames YouTube page, which currently holds all of the proceedings, the four days of hearings, and uh, may be watched in full, as well as their related lectures and other events taking place um, in connection with the exhibition. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks a lot, Carolyn. This has been AI Murmurings, a project of Slow Research Lab. The music you've been hearing is from The Resonance Canons, composed and performed by Christopher Tigner from his album, A Light Below, released in 2019 on Western Vinyl. To learn more, listen, and purchase Christopher Tigner's music, please go to wiresundertension.com. To receive updates on this podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcasting app or follow our Instagram. It's AI underscore murmurings. I'd like to thank programming partners Anton van den Hengel, director of the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, and Tom Haidu, Director of Sia Furler Institute, audio engineer Fabian Reichle, as well as the Dutch Creative Industries Fund for their generous financial support. I'm Carolyn Strauss, Director of Slow Research Lab. <laughs>